0: have some notes. Sometimes those are helpful. It's just a skeleton of what I'll talk about. The more important thing that's on here is... Thank you, Peter. The more important thing is um, there are some quotes on the outline as you work your way through, and, and those can form the service of being a sort of functional bibliography for you. Um, the title of this session is Prayer, uh, the Cry of Revival, or I guess the Cry of Revival, Prayer as Spiritual lifeblood. And you can see on the outline there are just those three sections. Um, I want to talk about some definitions, the link between prayer and revival. And then I just want to talk about some practical matters, um, maybe some mechanics, if you will. That's not quite the right word, but... um, the motivations that drive me to prayer, and I'll just be real frank with you in this session about what I do in praying. I've failed in trying to pray a lot of different ways, and, um, and I've found something in recent years that works well, and I'll just share that with you. Um, that feels a little funny to me, doing that, and I'll just tell you the truth. That feels kind of odd to talk about the specifics of prayer. That's almost like a man talking about the specifics of his sex life with his wife like how often and how long, and that just, uh, I'm like, that might be too much. But sometimes it's helpful to hear, oh, that's what that guy does, and that's how it works, and um, so we'll do a little bit of that in those four points under that second section of um, prayer and you. is really just prayer and me. These are the motivations for me and the, the, the biblical um, impulses that have given rise to my own prayer life. And then this conference is called Fellowship in the Gospel. Um, the teaching isn't meant to just be good solid biblical teaching uh, of any sort it's meant to be teaching that directly connects whatever text in the scriptures is being preached whatever topic is being discussed with the cross of Christ mm. and so that last point prayer what do, what do I have there prayer in the cross or prayer in the gospel um, is, is the foundation of the whole thing and uh, so why don't we pray And um, we'll try to look at some of this material. Our Father. It's such a privilege for rebels and sinners and fools to call the living God our Father. To have instant access into your presence to have your full and joyful attention. And we thank you for our standing, which was completely earned for us by Christ. We don't deserve to be here. There are times we don't even want to be here, but Jesus has secured it all. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect life of righteousness. Thank you for your atoning death, sacrifice. Thank you for your resurrection, for our justification and your ascension and your reign on the throne in heaven. It's to you we pray. It's through you we pray. And thank you for your intercession, bringing our prayers to the Father and praying to him for us. Mm -hmm. Father, pray that you would be pleased with our time. Jesus, I ask that you would be... um, empowering and strengthening us by your spirit and holy spirit i pray that you would lift up christ among us and make us better prayers in jesus name Amen. my goal is that every one of us in this room would, would experience an uptick in your own prayer your own practice of prayer not your understanding of prayer i hope that you will understand some things i hope to be um instructive But generally speaking, we don't need more instruction about prayer. In fact, one um, Samuel Chadwick, I think the first quote comes from Samuel Chadwick. Um, He says there are tons of questions about prayer. All of them get answered as we pray. And I think he's right. All the questions about praying go away as we just start to practice prayer. And um, so my prayer is that everyone who participates in this session will experience an actual practical uptick in your own praying. And that some would become devoted prayers. There have been men in the history of the church and women who have been truly devoted prayers. And that's the way the book of Acts describes the church. Several places the church is described as being devoted to prayer. And it never unpacks specifically what that is. But I think it was Piper maybe who said one time, if you were to watch someone's life, and in the case of the early church, if you watched the early church, if you could observe them for a month, you would know the difference between what's devoted to prayer and what's not. You could just look at it and go, that's devotion to prayer, without the specifics. And and so my prayer is that maybe 10%, I've asked the Lord for this specifically, 10% of the brothers that participate in our session would, in ensuing months and years and the rest of their lives, live lives of true devotion to prayer. Wouldn't that be a great experience and legacy and the fruit of that, the fruit of your life? Sam Chadwick says this in his book, The Path to Prayer. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer, of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Jacob wrestling in the stillness of the night, Moses standing in the breach, Hannah intoxicated with sorrow, David heartbroken with remorse and grief, and Jesus in sweat of blood. Mm. Add, to this, add to this list from the records of the church your own personal observations and experience. And always there is the cost of passion unto blood. In other words, the cost for power. The cost of power is passionate prayer unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There's this inevitable essential link between prayer and revival. That's the linchpin. It's always been the linchpin. And the glory of it is, it's ordinary people who pray and power comes. Turn to James chapter 5. I just want to sort of set the tone for the remaining 40 minutes or so with this text. James chapter 5, verse 16, in the middle of the verse, says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as its working. Unless you misunderstand what a righteous person is, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently. And James, like a good Jew, says it the way it would have been said in the Hebrew Bible. He prayed, praying. That's a Semitic way of saying something for emphasis. You just repeat it. James prayed, praying. So, whatever you think of as fervently, just set that aside. James prayed with prayer, he prayed prayerfully. That's what he did. He was just a prayer, a dude just like us. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months, it didn't rain. That's astonishing. I've heard prosperity gospels. I was just watching a video, prosperity gospel preachers. I was watching a video on YouTube. I don't know what turned me onto this. I think it was the Facebook group. Reformed Thug Life. Do you guys know? Do you guys know that Facebook group? They do these videos of you know some prosperity gospel preacher, and then a Paul Washer picture comes, and the sunglasses fade in. I think it was, um, I think it was, um, I don't remember what prosperity preacher it was, talking about being able to rebuke a, a, a tornado. It ascends back up, into and I'm like, that is such BS. I can't. Remember. And then you read in in James writes about. Elijah, who was a man just like us who prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years, that's prevailing power. But the point James wants to make is he was an ordinary man, which means every great prayer in the history of the church was at one point in his life not a good prayer. He didn't know how to pray. He didn't pray. He prayed poorly at best. And and he learned how to pray. The very best thing that happened to me in leaving Berean, an established church with a lot of people and a, a multiple-member staff, and going to a small church with just one person and Jesus and the Bible on on that pastoral team. That was it. The best thing was, I I I failed. I I felt like I blew it. I I, I kind of thought I'm going to go to this church and. I've had the endorsement of my church and the endorsement of our pastoral team, and and the call of God. I know for sure I've got to go to this church, and um, and it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna grow. Things are gonna happen. People are gonna get saved. The church is gonna be glad I'm there. And I was there for a few years, and the best people left, and nobody got saved. And I remember standing on the west side of our building. We were up on a hill, and those windows look out to the mountains. and um, We can see literally from Pikes Peak, we can see Pikes Peak in the south, all the way up almost probably to the Colorado border where, the Wyoming, uh, Wyoming. where Wyoming starts, and the, and, the, and the mountains start to slope down a little bit. Cool. It's this, and I'm looking out at these mountains, and I'm like, God, I feel like I got duped. <laughs> I know you called me here, and nothing is going well. Why did you do this? You did not choose me, but I chose you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and your fruit should remain. Jesus said that, and I feel like he lied to me. What the heck? And out of that crisis, I feel like I learned how to pray. And I have tried to pray a lot of years, I mean, ever since I've been a Christian, the heart of every human being, every religion is a praying religion. Every faith prays. Jimmy Kimmel on uh, the Late Show a couple nights ago talked about his his son needing to go in for emergency care right after he was born. And in the course of that, he makes this joke. We even had atheists praying for us. Ha, 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 everyone laughs. Because everyone knows even atheists do pray in moments of crisis. Everybody prays. But Christians have a heart cry. We'll talk about that at the very end. Christians have an innate, implanted, cry toward god that says father abba you've got to help Mm. and 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 i just somehow god brought me through that wilderness and taught me to pray um i'm not the best prayer the world has ever known but i don't go to god anymore and feel like i've got to go god i'm sorry i suck still at prayer i just I, i i need to repent of my praying i still repent for my praying but it's it's this is not a brag. This is just testimony of God's grace. I feel like somebody in this conference has to talk on prayer. And if I have to do it, I don't have to stand in front of you and go, guys, I suck at prayer too. I've got to learn how to do this. I feel like God's taught me. So that's my testimony. That's just what I want to share with you. Always been this link between, between um, prayer and revival. But typically, revival's not going to show up in our prayer meetings when the prayer list is pray for Aunt Betty's ingrown toenail and pray that we find our cat that ran off in the weeds. Right? The the normal praying of of our own lives and our church, and anybody got prayer requests? Yeah, pray for, you know, Bobby's still looking for a job. Those are important things. We see them prayed for in the New Testament and the Old Testament, don't we? We see them prayed for in the Bible. But revival comes typically in response to a different whole order of praying, and this categorization, you see it on your notes there, that's that first distinction. Um, the first definition: maintenance prayer and kingdom prayer, or um, the difference between maintenance prayer and um, frontline prayer. I think it's sometimes called. I think the guy that originated the terms was um, was uh, was John Miller, who actually originated the phrase "Preach the gospel to yourself every day" um, in his book. Uh, oh, did. I can't think of the name of his book. I'll think of it in a moment. Um, he, he sets out these categories, and Tim Keller then sort of perpetuates them in some of his teaching and things. Frontline prayer versus You can imagine the difference just by the term. Maintenance prayers are the prayers that keep us going, that meet the everyday circumstantial needs of our lives. We need God in those moments. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread." Those are not bad prayers. They're just not the prayers that typically induce revival. Frontline praying typically focuses on one of three things or all three of these things, and you see it in the crisis moment prayers in the Bible when God shows up in power. Moses prays on the mountain, If I have found glory, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your glory. That's one of the qualities of frontline prayer. God, you've got to satisfy me with your steadfast love. I am so hungry. I am so thirsty. Please show us your glory. We need you. That's one quality of frontline prayer. Another quality of frontline prayer is a brokenness for the lost and a zeal for the church. In other words, the frontline work of the kingdom, the advancement of God's kingdom, which manifests in the church and in pagan people who aren't under the reign of Jesus in that personal sense coming under his reign. So um, uh, in Acts chapter 4, if you want to flip over there, you can look at that story where the apostles are, are, are beaten for sharing the gospel, and they go back and tell the church, and the church has this prayer meeting, and they say, uh, Lord, this, this perfectly fulfills prophecy. This is in Psalm 2, and, and they pray part of Psalm 2 to the Lord. And uh, they mention the gospel. In this city, these people killed Jesus, and they did it by your preordained plan. And then, verse 29, they named their request. Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak the word with boldness and you stretch out your hand to heal so signs and wonders will be performed through, your, uh, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. That's a frontline prayer, a kingdom prayer. That's not a maintenance prayer. That's a prayer that's like God pushed the gospel forward in the darkness backward. That's a different order of prayer altogether than what typically is going on on Wednesday night. Yeah. And then the third quality of A frontline prayer, or or um, kingdom prayer, a hunger for God, uh, brokenness for the lost, and zeal for the church. And then the third quality is um, a confession of sin, Uh, a humble spirit before the Lord. Of we are not what we should be. In other words, the reason we don't have you, and the reason that lost people aren't getting saved, is our own sin. You haven't failed to keep your promises. We've failed to do what we should do. And at one level or another, there's a problem in us. Those are frontline prayers. Now, what you'll notice when you start praying that way, I think you will notice a couple things. One is, those are impulses and cries in your heart anyway. This just puts voice to them. Another thing you'll notice is, that's that's a prayer of, of real brokenness. It's a prayer of boldness and a prayer of vision, but it's a prayer of brokenness. It's a prayer of honesty that admits... My experience is here, and God's promises are here. There's a category name for that type of prayer in the Bible. Do you know what it is? It's actually on your outline. It's number two, I think, under the definitions or whatever. Isn't that there? Mm -hmm. Prayers of lament. Lament is pouring out my heart to God because I see the gap between my experience and his promise. Have any of you ever studied Lament. Have you ever been in a sermon series on lament? Gary, did you say uh, yeah? Anybody seriously ever studied uh, lament in the Bible? Okay. Uh, This isn't a session on lament, but it's probably worth it to spend maybe five or ten minutes talking about this. Because the Bible... I was going to say majors on lament, but that's a bit of an overstatement. Lament is front and center in the biblical revelation. Fully one-third to one-half of the prayer book of the Bible, which is what... the Psalms, fully one half to one third, one third to one half of the Psalms are laments. <clears throat> what proportion are our songs laments? In fact, when was the last time you sang a lament on Sunday morning? I mean, really, when, part of the problem, I think, with our praying is we just don't hurt enough. And I don't mean that to make us feel guilty. It's that we don't see what the Bible offers, and the contrast between it and our everyday lives. And if we, if we, if we were honest about what God's promised and what we're experiencing, um, we would lament. And lament is a great blessing to us because, yes, it's a complaint, but it's not just complaint. It's not unrestrained complaint. It's not just
1: the the flood of the river
0: has just overrun the banks, and it's destroying all the countryside. Lament runs in a channel. There's a a traditional structure that the laments in the Bible follow, and that structure is a blessing to us. Every lament in Psalms has five pieces to it, and they all follow this structure. Every single lament. Uh, Look at Psalm 13. This is an easy place to see it. It's a short psalm. It lays those pieces out very... clearly, and they're actually in order, which is nice. They're not always in this order, but good job, David, for doing it for us the way it should be done. We think you should have done it that way. Good job doing it. Um, There's one psalm that lacks one of these pieces. There's one psalm of lament that lacks, but every psalm of lament has five pieces. There's an address. And in the psalms of lament, it's usually very simple and straightforward. Oh, God. Oh, God. The point of that is not to be just blown over and bypassed. Lament is grieving with God. It's bringing God into this gap between my experience and the promise. So that's one difference between lament and a 16-year-old who's got his earbuds in, and he's just laying on the floor of his bedroom, listening to his emo music, and feeling what he has to feel. That's not lament. That's just self-indulgence. Lament brings God into the moment with the address. It's not a big elaborate address, though, right? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's not a lament. This is a lament, and the psalmist just says, How long, O Lord? The second part is a complaint. How long will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Just pouring out this And you notice how honest he is with God? Will you forget me? It sounds like an accusation. What you learn as you read through the laments in the scriptures, there's almost nothing that you can't say to God. It's remarkable what these people, have you forgotten your covenant? You've abandoned the terms? I mean, they charge God with all sorts. Will your wrath burn forever? And so there's a complaint. And one of the blessings of lament, if you understand the biblical structure and the category for it and actually engage in it, is it helps you give voice to this angst and longing and dissatisfaction deep inside. It gives voice to that. So you don't have to just keep it in and lay on the floor of your bedroom and listen to your emo. Man, I feel so crummy. No, this helps you. This structure is helpful. So an address, a complaint, then there's a request. God, do something. I think that's in verse 3. Yeah. Yeah. Consider and answer me. O Lord my God, light up my eyes. Here's what I want you to do. And then the psalmist always gives rationale. Here's why I want you to do it. He says a couple of them here. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. God, if you don't show up, I die and they win. That's what he says. So, in other words, he doesn't just ask God for things. He tells God why God should do that. Have you ever done that in your prayer? Not just God bless my family and God bless my wife, but God bless my family because if you do, we will praise you. We will thank you. Because if you don't, I'm not sure how we'll survive. Because if you do, I will faithfully continue to obey you. David uses all sorts of rationale when he, and, and the other psalms and all the biblical prayers when they pray. There's rationale. Uh, so so, so often, my prayers for revival um, are, are, God, where is the power of the gospel? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where are the great works that Jesus said, greater works than I have done, you will do. Where's that? We have not seen anyone converted in six weeks or whatever at our church. Please. Okay? So you can hear in there, the address, the complaint, the rationale. Um, Please, please give us power to share the gospel. Make our whole congregation have the impulse to share the gospel, not just feel like the professionals should be doing that. And God, you've got to do this because Jesus' glory is at stake. I, I, you know, our church is on this hill and the mountains are, are you know, 20 miles away, and in between our church in Parker and the mountains is this big valley, and it stretches north and south, but it's about you know, 10 miles wide, and, and it's filled with hundreds of thousands of people, and I can sit up there and see almost all of their houses. I can see the Denver skyline and the Tech Center skyline, and I can see whole subdivisions and housing developments and then, and then valleys, and I just I'm like, God, hundreds of thousands of people in this valley don't know Jesus, and many of them think they do, you've got to break through their blindness. Please, if you don't, they go to hell forever, and Jesus doesn't get glorified, and the devil wins, and we, his people, are all, his, your people, are all disappointed. <clears throat> so just listing off all these reasons. And then the end of a lament is always a profession of faith. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. So a prayer for revival is a lament prayer categorically. It's God, we are destined for so much more than this, and what we have is so small. Enough already. Please, enough. That's what it is, categorically. So we would do well to learn to lament. I think one more point quick on this. The real blessing of lament. In the scriptures, we have not just the Psalms. We have a whole book in the Bible that is lament. Right? What's it called? Lamentations. Lamentations. Yes, nice. Good job. We have another book in the Bible that's mostly lament. It's not far from lamentations. It's all the personal laments of Job. Most of that book is lament. When the Savior was on the cross dying, where did he go to give voice to his agony? Psalm 22, a psalm of lament. He was lamented. Oh God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, 1, he took a lament on his lips to... So what we learn as we look at this biblical model of how to pour out your prayers of disillusionment and disappointment and discouragement, what we learn is that Usually the answer to lament is not specifically the answer to what we've asked for. It's just God that's most clearly shown up in in, in the book of Job. right? That guy laments for 40, 39 chapters, well, 35 chapters. It's just lament after lament, and his friends make it worse. And at the end of the story, he doesn't get any answers to all of his laments and questions. He doesn't get his day in court with God to defend himself, which he so strenuously pled for. He doesn't even get from God the promise. It happens, but he doesn't get the promise ahead of time that his fortune will be restored and his kids will be given back. All he gets is God, and he's okay. He's good. He's finally quiet. That's the blessing of lament, that when we learn to pour out our heart to God about what he's promised, in contrast to what we're experiencing... Shows up, and that is revival. So, let me talk about some mechanical things prayer and you. Some, some mechanics, and for me, motivations. I already, I already basically told you the story on dependence and weakness and brokenness. That it's there's nothing like the desert to teach you to pray, God, we've got to have you. You know, that was the whole point of the desert for Israel, right? Um, Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, Uh, Verse 3, I think it is. Uh, The Lord led you into the wilderness and fed you with manna so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone. I'm like, you gave them manna to teach them manna wasn't enough? I wouldn't have gotten that lesson. But Moses says that's what it was for. The lesson of the bread was to teach them. The wilderness was to teach them. You don't need God just for your daily food. You need God for everything. He is your sustenance, the point of the wilderness. I think... um, I think Keller is the one who says, um, the the point of the wilderness, the wilderness shows, we don't know God is all we need until God is all we have. And the wilderness shows us that. So you've already heard, the blessing of reading other books on prayer is I've seen that story, my own story, repeated in these other books. Paul Miller says it in A Praying Life, and if you don't have that book, you need to get that and read that book. He says, I went through these hardships and these circumstances in my life, and I found along the way God had taught me to pray. Uh, Samuel Chadwick says that in his book, he was a new pastor. Samuel Chadwick, do you know who that is? I, I don't. So Paul Washer counts as his disciple, or Leonard Ravenhill, who counts as his disciple, or Samuel Chadwick. So if you like Paul Washer, go up to his grandfather, that's Sam Chadwick. Samuel Chadwick said that he was pastoring a church. And saw very little of what he wanted to happen, and so he learned how to pray. I was like, oh, I've lived that story. Tim Keller says it in his book on prayer. Paul Miller says it this way, which is so convicting. A needy heart is a praying heart. Dependency is the heartbeat of prayer. If you are not praying, then you are confidently, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. Mm -hmm. In other words, the reason you're not praying is your pride, not your lack of discipline. Mm -hmm. That's your problem. You think you've got it covered. And until we are truly poor in spirit, and absolutely broken. There, there, there's, there's no motivation to get up and to get up out of bed in the morning and and make sure you have an hour to spend with God. There's nothing like that. There's nothing that does that like the knowledge that if I don't pray, all is lost. Then you pray. Then you really pray. So if you think your money, your time, your talent, your resources are enough, you don't need to pray. You're good. But if you know they're not enough, that's God's grace in your life wooing you to pray. That's what he's doing. Joy. I have in my notes Ephesians 3... 14 to 19. Ray preached on that last night. I expressly emailed, I called Jeff a couple days before the conference to make sure that my texts weren't the same as the preacher's texts, and they weren't, and he changed. So (coughs) Ephesians 3 all over again. But uh, since he went through that so carefully and wonderfully for us last night, all I want to draw your attention to is the, well, I guess you should probably flip there. I don't want to assume that that's all clear in your head. What I want you to notice is the commonness, um, if you will, the, um, the universality of the things he's praying for, for every Christian. Not that he's asking them to be universal. They are universal. This is what it means to be a Christian. That Verse 16 you would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. What it means to be a Christian is you have the Holy Spirit in your inner being and his power. Why is Paul praying that they would have that? That according to, oh, that's verse 16, 17, that Christ would dwell in your heart through faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. We encourage little kids, probably unwisely, ask Jesus into your heart and you'll become a Christian. And Paul prays that this Christian church would have that. What is he what is he asking? That you would comprehend by God's strength the breadth and length and height and depth of the and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Know this thing that can't be known. I think that's part of the key, that's a hint to what he's actually praying for. And that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We teach kids that as well. I mean You as a Christian, your body is the temple of God. He lives in you. So what's Paul praying for if we already have all of that? He's praying that we would enter into the every moment experience of it. Beyond, He was praying what Ray was preaching. We know justification by faith in our heads, but it's not activated in our everyday lives. And... And, and, and last night he told the story of D.L. Moody. I have that story in my notes where Moody wrote in his journal, one day in New York City, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. That's what Paul's praying for. Um, Blaise Pascal, French mathematician, Uh, 1600s, in the heady days of the Enlightenment, you know, advancement in human knowledge and science and discovery and the realization that the world runs by scientific principles. It's not animated. It's not animistic. It's not random. People get sick because of germs. They don't get sick because of evil humors in their body. Right? All this scientific discovery And Blaise Pascal is right in the thick of that. And he wasn't given to all the naturalistic explanations. He wasn't um, Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am. Reason is the, is the explanation for all existence in the, in the definition. Pascal always had this sense of he's the one that said, um, the heart has its reasons which reason does not know. Right? You can't explain everything. You can't sit on a bench with a woman you love and explain all of that rationally, what's going on in between you and her and the deep affection. Well, he became a Christian somewhere along the line. And there wasn't a lot known about his conversion until after his death, uh, during his preparation for burial, they found sewn into the lining of his jacket a a, a piece of parchment that he had written on (coughs) years earlier, which described apparently his conversion. And he wrote this. May 23rd, 1654. (coughs) Quote, from about half past ten in the evening until half past twelve. Fire. Fire. All caps, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the savants. Assurance, assurance, feeling, joy, peace. Just these words, He can't even get them into whole sentences. He's just trying to articulate what's going on in his heart. That's Ephesians 3. That's why we pray. We don't pray just because of brokenness. We pray out of longing. God, you have promised that we can taste and see that the Lord is good, and, and I need a taste i'm so hungry i'm so thirsty i'm so dry and and as we work at praying we learn that prayer becomes for us a joy there's joy in it but we long for it we that's our favorite it becomes sweet to us there's that fine quote from keller if someone is all-powerful as that loves me like this, delights in me, has gone to infinite lengths to save me, says he will never let me go, is, wor- is going to glorify me and make me perfect and take everything bad out of my life. If all that's true, why am I worried about anything? I would maybe paraphrase it in this context to say, why am I doing anything other than praying, talking to him, meeting with him, pursuing intimacy with him? There's an element here of obedience. We have to obey. We have to discipline ourselves to do this thing, especially at the, start end, the, the front end of any habit. We have to obey. Now, I'll tell you what I do, and the mechanics that started working for me, I don't know if this will be helpful to anybody, probably not, because it's not directly transferable to many of you. Because the place I pray is our church building. And I don't know how many of you have access to something like that. But I, I, I get up every day at the same time. This is what the guy that discipled me, I mean, Jerry, you know this pattern. Terry McIntosh gets up early and goes into the office before anybody else is in the building, and he prays. He'll read his Bible, at least he used to when I was at Berea. And he walks around that building for, for an hour before anybody else shows up and just meets with God for an hour. He prays every day. I've tried a variety of different things. What I've been doing for, for the last, I don't even remember when it started now, but what I've been doing consistently for a while is I get into the office at 7.30, 7.45, and nobody shows up till 9, and I have an hour, hour and a half to pray. And I just walk around and pray. I walk through the auditorium and pray. If the weather's nice, I walk around the parking lot and pray. Our neighbors must think I'm mad because I'm just pacing in the parking lot, and my lips are moving because I'm praying out loud. And, and the other thing maybe that will be helpful is on my phone, I have one of those notebook apps where you can keep, you know, pictures and things like that, and I have, I have a prayer tab. And, and, and on the – I want this open right now.
1: Mm-hmm. On my
0: prayer tab, I have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday tabs. And on Monday, I pray for our church, and not just the people, but the specific qualities that I want to see in our church. I pray that our church would be God-centered, that our church would be doers of the word, practically centered on and living out the gospel, strong families, an evangelistic impact on this valley, that people would be in discipling relationships with one another, that we'd have unity. And I literally have this stuff listed, but I do it every single Monday. I come off of Sunday morning, I'm thinking about our church, and I just pray for our church. On Tuesday, I pray for my family and my wife's family. Our children, of course, and then her parents, my parents, our siblings and nieces and nephews. Wednesday, I pray for our missionaries that we support, the people themselves. Um, On Thursday, I pray for uh, the mission agencies that we're connected to and the agencies that have had a huge impact on my life. So Thursday, I pray for Berean, and I pray for Southern Seminary. On Friday, I pray for close friends. Friends in ministry, that's a whole category I've got. Guys that I'm discipling, that's a category that I've got. People in our care group, um, and then just longtime friends of our family, people we've discipled, mentored, things like that. Uh, That's my Friday list. Saturday, I pray for evangelistic contacts in my own life. My neighbors, the Parker Police Department when I'm a chaplain. That's just what I do. I've got to have that list because if I show up on Monday morning and I don't have something deliberate, I'll probably pray for... 20 minutes, and it'll be a meaningful time of connection with the Lord, and I'll forget a dozen things that I ought to be praying about. So I just need that list. And I use this, because when I pray on Wednesday for missionaries, for example, um, I don't know if you can see that very well, but kind of the blue, I want to pray for the unreached parts of the world. And so I have a link right on my app to the Joshua Project, and I hit that on Wednesday, and it takes me to an unreached people group, and I pray for them on Wednesday and then i have a link to operation world because i want to pray around the countries of the world and and they tell me what what country to pray for this week and so that's that's what works for me and i've prayed in ways that don't work a lot so i found something finally that works for me and i meet with god in that time and it's sweet and precious and for 30 minutes of the hour i just i just i This is weird, Jerry. Terry used to say this. He used to say, if people heard me praying, they would think it was irreverent because I'm just walking along, talking with Jesus as though he were a friend of mine. That's what has happened. It's almost weird to me to tell you that because I I know how to stink at prayer and always feel guilty about prayer. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I I walk around this hilltop with Jesus and go, thank you for for bringing me to this place and teaching me to do this." this. I've never lived this faithfully and then three times a year i try to take a prayer retreat where i go away for two or three days get an overnight i go to a hotel or a camp somewhere or something and i take my bible and a book and a journal and i just pray and i I usually pray in the i have one when i get back next week thursday friday saturday I, i i usually pray in the spring about pastoral no in the spring i pray about our church and what we need to preach on in the coming year and things like that and then in the fall i pray about my family and then in the winter I take a retreat and I pray about just pastoral ministry, my calling. And I go with my Bible. That's about it. My Bible and a journal and a hymnal. And I open up every text I can think of on pastoral ministry and just pray through that. And that's how, that's how So that's my prayer. And there's an obedience to it. And I do it because to disobey God is just not wise.
1: <laughs>
0: so we better figure it out. Right? He's told us to pray. We better learn. Okay. Sorry about all that. Um, non-Bible stuff, but that's just, that's what has worked for me. Meditation on the Word of God. Um, you know, George Mueller said, get your heart happy in the Lord, and then Mueller would go to prayer. So that's what I do. I get up and I read my Bible at home, and then I get my kids in the car and drop them off at school, and then I pray. And so my heart has been warmed to God. It's hard to start cold, but the Word helps. Prayer in the Gospel. Turn to Romans 8 real quickly, 14 to 16. I should have put the texts on each one of these points because I've not referred you to them and so you don't have them written down there, I'm sorry. But this one I want you to see for sure. Romans 8. I want to put this link together for you between your praying and the gospel itself. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, (laughs) Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The heart cry of a son is Father. That's the impulse in the heart of a Christian. Russ Moore wrote a great book on adoption. And in it, he talks not just about the theology of adoption and that point in the gospel. He talks about his own experience adopting two sons from an orphanage in Russia he says this. The most horrifying aspect of the orphanage was that it was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries, so they stopped.
1: Hmm.
0: He says the first sign that the boys were connecting with them was after they visited the orphanage and spent a whole afternoon holding those boys and some time playing with them. And they had picked, the orphanage had picked for them two boys that they were going to adopt. So they spent some time with them, and when they put them back in the crib, he says, for, uh, when, when, they put, when they put one of their sons back in the crib before the adoption was finalized, he started crying. And Moore writes, it was the first time either of the boys had cried. For whatever reason, he seemed to think he'd be heard. And for whatever reason, he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. Mm -hmm. And suddenly this silent little baby cried. Because he knew, somebody will hold me. Somebody there has me. Somebody wants me. That's your birthright as a Christian Jesus cried out in lament on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only recorded prayer we have from our Savior where he doesn't call him Father. So that you never have to pray that way and so that you always can come to him saying, Father. What it means to be a son of any father is you have immediate personal, direct access to him. Brothers, that's what Jesus bought for you on the cross. That's the impulse he planted in your heart as a Christian and a son of the Father and an adoptive brother of Jesus of Nazareth. That's who you are. The impulse in you is to cry out, Father, and think about what a privilege that is. And I don't mean how great God is, but that's true too. What I mean is the greatest experience in human history, was Adam's experience of walking with God in the garden. That's what all redemptive history exists to restore. To get us back as God's people, dwelling with him in his presence forever. Direct, personal, immediate access to God. Jesus bought that for you, and prayer in his name is that experience. You get the Garden of Eden back. And that's what prayer is. So let's not overlook that great privilege of ours. Put the gospel in you as fuel for your prayer. All right? So that's all I think that I have. Um, we pray. We'll take a few minutes for questions if there are any. If there aren't, I'll let you go. Our Father, thank you so much for the work you did and the, and the love you showed and the grace and the wisdom in putting together the redemptive plan to give us back our fellowship with you. Direct, immediate, personal access to God as our Father. I pray that we would take advantage, and from this group, every one of us would pray more and pray better, and some of us would become true champions of prayer in our generation. In Jesus' name. So comments or questions?
2: Josh, not to belabor the point uh, on lament. Uh, I did a series on on the book of Job and and that's what I did my study on on lament. Whatever Old Testament intro you drew your voice from, my five points are almost word for word the same as yours. But uh, I just want to read a a quote that I used from Carl Truman if I I can. You've probably heard this, but uh, he said this. I thought it was kind of interesting. In the last year, I've asked three very different evangelical audiences, what miserable Christians can sing in church? Thank you. On each occasion, my question has elicited uproarious laughter as if the idea of a brokenhearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. Yet I ask the question in all seriousness, is it any wonder that British evangelicalism is almost entirely a comfortable, middle-class phenomenon.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've, I've actually heard or read that quote where he says, miserable Christians sing lament. Lament. Well, yeah, that's what we were and, meant to say. And
2: I think, uh, the, again, because you said so much more other than lament, but I think lament is the way, that is the means that God gives us to complain to him with the idea, as you pointed out, that his honor is always brought to the forefront. So when you look at a lament, you come as a miserable, uh, despairing, complaining child of God, and by the end, you're a child of God who's giving thanksgiving and glory to him, because the lament is transformed.
0: Yeah, I didn't say this, but I'm glad you just did. The last feature of lament, those five points, the last one is that expression of faith. I've never disciplined myself to go through the process of writing a lament or praying a lament and then had to force myself to follow the pattern and profess faith in Jesus. I've always felt it. Mm -hmm. I just have. It it happens. It has spontaneously. It may not. There's one psalm in the Psalter that does not end with a confession of faith. One lament that doesn't conclude there. And I think that's just honest. There are times when the darkness is so pervasive that it's hard to even say I do trust you. It's just pure honesty and brokenness. But every other one does. Yeah, Chester, do you might go through those five points again. This yeah. One. So they're um, an address to God, a complaint, a request for something I want him to do, rationale for why he should do it, and then a confession of faith. You can find it in any. Gary's right. Everybody says this about lament. But you can just look at the
1: laments and you see that. You made made a comment earlier about when we think we are or we have enough, we don't see the need to depend on God. And I wonder if some don't pray because of that, but also because they lack the faith that God actually has ordained prayer as a means yeah. to the end of this this part of our existence. Right. I mean, can you speak to that? Do you, yeah. mean, do you see that? I mean absolutely words, not, I don't think it's excluded from the idea of why people don't pray. I agree with you. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up.
0: That um, one of the other ways that the nerve of prayer is cut is just cynicism. That we don't think the life that, that it will really do anything. That the world will really change. Um, and and we've got to just, we've, we've got to pray by faith. That, that's, Jerry, that's a great point. We have to pray believing God ordained this, and he responds when we do it. And um, um, that, that cynical unbelief that goes, I know how the world works. I'm wiser than that. There's no toy in the box, no matter how deep I dig or how hard. It's not going to change. My marriage sucks. My Christian life stinks whatever. My job is a dead end. Nothing's going to get better. Mm. And um, part of the glory of starting to practice prayer is that the cynicism starts to fade. If we start to obey, we actually start to believe in what we're doing. That's my experience, and I've read dozens of people, not dozens, I've read many people who have had the same testimony.
1: Added to that, then, just to speak briefly to the issue of just laziness. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is fed
0: by our unbelief, which is, um, which is fed by our belief in ourselves. I don't know what you want me to say about laziness. We'll all, raise your hand if you struggle with prayer because you're lazy. Listen, I will tell you the truth. There are, I can't remember how many now, I think there are six things that I pray for myself every day, and they all start with P. I, that just happened. I don't know how that happened. It used to be a list of four for personal purity. God, keep me sexually pure. Keep me prayerful. Keep me productive and save me from laziness. Self-employed guys, especially pastors, can get away with scores of wasted hours and nobody asks us about it. So I pray, make me productive, and then I pray, keep me at peace. Because anybody that knows me knows I can be anxious and especially fretful sometimes about my health. And so I'm like, God, keep me at peace. Now I've added to that two more things. Give me spiritual power and a sense today of your presence. Those six things I pray every single day. Every single day. And so laziness is an enemy of every good thing God wants to get done in my life. Yeah,
1: I, I mention that because I think there are men in our churches, ministry and otherwise, that think that, well, I don't operate as a disciplined person, so I've got to find another way. And I think that the issue of laziness needs to be tackled with a disciplined approach. In other words, I don't think it's enough to say, I'm not really a strong, disciplined sort of person, and so I I need another way to figure out how prayer is important or it can work for me. And I think to those people, we need to stress, force yourself into paths of discipline and practice. So when you speak of the practice of your own prayer life, you're really speaking of the discipline of it. Agreed,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. There, but we want our prayer life to be spontaneous and free-flowing, and just I pray because I just love God and I can't stop praying right now. And uh, I think I think it was Piper who said, the flower of creativity or the fruit of creativity grows in the garden of discipline. Mm-hmm. You've got to force yourself to cultivate the garden through habits, mm-hmm. and then there are times that your prayer just happens spontaneously. Yeah.
1: So yeah. he also said in that yeah, same sermon
0: both. Agreed. He said in that same sermon, uh, if you find prayers difficult for you. Acknowledge that you are sinful like the rest of us. Repent and obey.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: God, guys, we've got to obey. It is not safe or wise to disobey God. And he says, pray. And it's not just out of obedience. Pray and I'll offer, I offer you incredible things if you'll pray. So, yeah, be, it, laziness is a huge problem. But in my own life, this is just my testimony, really, on paper. The thing that drove me to prayer was brokenness, not discipline. Right. Discipline sustains it now. No, no. Anything else we got on?